Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cocciolillo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I'd like to thank my listeners and also thank my contributors, executive producer Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to this show, just go to everythingimaginable2020.com. There's a whole bunch of information there to find out how you can help. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Kevin D. Randall. He is the author of UFOs in a History of Military and Shadow Governments, Deep State. I I think I read this wrong, but (laughs) anyway. He's written this book, and he's written about 25 other books, and I'm pretty confident to say that you are probably the world's leading authority on Roswell. Thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. What can we do for you? (laughs) Let's start out with Roswell, actually. Oh, Um, my God. Why not start there? You know, 1947, I was just, in fact, I've been reading a couple books on Roswell recently, and... um, what happened? How many crafts crashed? Was it three? And was it caused by some type of magnetic weapon that the government was using to make them crash? I would say that there was one object and it crashed because somebody on board the craft pushed the wrong button. Hmm. I don't see any evidence that anything we did brought it down. I know there's been some discussion about radar signals bringing it down. And yeah. I'm thinking that a, a race of beings that can travel interstellar space and all the inherent problems and dangers in interstellar space would get to Earth and then run into a magnetic anomaly that would bring them down. I think they were well aware of those kinds of problems and had uh, built their craft to withstand those kinds of uh, problems. Hmm. And did any extraterrestrials live? That's an interesting question, because I've heard testimony both ways, that all were dead when we got to them, meaning the, the military got to them, or that one or one of them survived and spent some time first at the Roswell Army Airfield Hospital, and then later was either at um, Los Alamos in the northern part of New Mexico or had been moved to another installation. Uh, the evidence for one surviving isn't as robust as uh, just the evidence for there being beings on board the craft. So I would like something a little more concrete before I say, yeah, one of them survived, but there is that possibility given the testimonies of various individuals. Okay. So we are saying though that definitely 100% a, a craft with extraterrestrial beings crashed in Roswell in 1947. Well, how did you ask me that question 20 years ago? I said, absolutely. In today's environment, and I did a book called Roswell in the 21st Century, where I looked at the Roswell case as a cold case, gone back through the investigations by 
any number of people, including the, what Don Schmidt and I had done, what Don Schmidt and Tom Carey had done, what Don, uh, Don Berliner and Stan Friedman had done, what Bill Moore and Charles Berlitz had done, looking at all of that information that had been gathered since Jesse Marcel talked about being the man who picked up pieces of a flying saucer in 1947, looking at all of that stuff and looking at the reliability of some of those witnesses, it's just not quite the point where I would say it's a 100% sure bet. I cannot think of an explanation that fits the, the evidence that uh, suggests a terrestrial object fell. We all agree, everybody agrees something fell in Roswell on, in July of 1947 and it confused people for a time being apparently. But I can't, I can't say for certain that it was extraterrestrial, but you've eliminated all the terrestrial explanations and there's really not many, uh, much, many other places to go when, you, when you've reached that point. But I laid all this out in the um, Roswell in the 21st century. And there's a long chapter about the Plains of St. Augustine. And this is the theory that two of them had collided and one fell near Corona, New Mexico, and then uh, one fell near the Plains of St. Augustine. The evidence for the St. Augustine crash all um, relates to the story told by Barding Barnett and the dating of his tale is somewhat problematic. And I say that because it, 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 we don't have any documentation for the Plains of San Augustine. Barney Barnett is the only source we've ever found that is reliable uh, about it. Fleck Danley, who was Barney's boss in 1947, said he remembered him talking about it and he thought it was 1947. And I think that was an outgrowth of the investigation by Bill Moore uh, suggesting that date because that was the date they were pushing for. When I talked to him, he just wasn't that convinced. So my opinion is based on all of that evidence is that we've got one, one object that fell near a or created a debris field, I should say, near um, Corona, New Mexico, and that a larger part of it came down uh, closer to, to Roswell, New Mexico. I, I discount the plains of San Augustine in the 1947 timeframe. Okay. Then after that, um, who was called in to investigate the crash first? Was it the Air Force? Well, Mac Brazel who was the ranch manager in 1947 of the place where it fell, uh, discovered the field filled with metallic, metallic debris and wasn't sure what to do with it, what to do about it. It was going to be, from the descriptions we've got, it would be kind of a Herculean task for the rancher to pick all this stuff up. And the suggestion was, well, it's something that came from the sky. Maybe you should talk to the, the boys at, uh, in Roswell. So he drove into uh, Roswell, New Mexico, and told the local sheriff, George Wilcox, Wilcox wasn't sure what to do, and he called out to the base and was finally put in touch with Jesse Marcel, the base intelligence officer. And Marcel drove to the sheriff's office and looked what they had, and then he went back and talked to Colonel Blanchard, the base commander, the commander of the 509th Bomb Group, about it. And Blanchard said, well, we've got that new CIC guy, counterintelligence guy, Sheridan Cabot, take him with you. And Marcel, Cabot, and Brazel all went back to the ranch uh, to look at the metallic debris. So the answer is the first person that really kind of took an investigative um, interest in it would have been the, the sheriff, George Wilcox. He sent a couple of deputies out based on the descriptions of the location to find it. And um, 
then he called out to the base. The first guys that got out there to take a look at what Brazel had found would have been Marcel and Cabot. So they would be the first official investigators from the United States military. Hmm. And then from there, how does one misidentify a extraterrestrial craft or a for a um, weather balloon or a weather balloon for extraterrestrial craft? Actually, had it backwards. Well, there's where you there's where you get into a bit of a problem, and I say that because um, early in July there was a balloon with a Ray One Ray One target reflector, radar, Raywind radar target reflector on it that fell near Circleville, Ohio. And the farmer who found it knew immediately what it was. He took it to the local sheriff and he knew immediately what it was. And they took it into the newspaper office and they looked at it and said, yeah, it's a balloon and a radar reflector. Jesse Marcel, the air intelligence officer, should have been able to recognize a balloon and a radar reflector. Um, so um, I think the, the idea is what they were doing in 1947 when they got to General Ramey's office, he being the commander of the 8th Air Force at the time, when they got to his office, they were trying to stop the public interest or the reporter's interest in this thing. And they trotted out a weather balloon and said, this is what the guys found. And they didn't get an opportunity to interview Marcel, except in the presence of various other military officers. They couldn't find Mac Brazel because he wasn't at the ranch. And even if he'd been at the ranch, they may not have been able to find him there, but he was being held at the base. Everybody that the reporters would want to talk to um, had been shut down. Sheriff Wilcox, when the reporters called him, he said that uh, he was working with the boys out at the base. So they couldn't get anywhere. And then they have this information coming from uh, 8th Air Force saying, well, it was just a, a radar target and a weather balloon. And there was nowhere else for them to go. So I think that's how we get to that point. So we see in the newspapers, the first story saying, well, they found a flying saucer. And then and, and, and within three hours, the story is broken down. Well, it was just a weather balloon, a mistaken weather balloon. Um, that's a preposterous explanation. The Air Force in 1995 reinvestigated. And they came up with this Project Mogul idea. They said, well, Mogul was this top secret project. and was made up these long arrays of balloons and radar targets and other devices. And it was uh, something that the guys in Roswell wouldn't have been familiar with. If you look at the field notes of the people working on Project Mogul, Dr. Albert Crary being the man in charge, the only flight that could have possibly fallen on the Brazel Ranch, the, uh, actually the Foster Ranch, for Mac Brazel to find, would have been launched on June 4th, 1947. And according to the field notes, they canceled that launch because of clouds. And we also find out that what was going on in New Mexico, the launch of these balloons, constant level balloons, these long arrays, was not classified. Pictures of the arrays appeared in the newspaper on July 10th. What was classified was the ultimate purpose, which was to spy on the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So we break down all of that sort of thing, and we're left with an explanation that we can document is impossible. The balloons didn't fly on June 4th. End of story. The other possibility was a flight supposedly going on July 9th, but that was that was too late because it, it, the stuff had already been found. So 
all of that takes takes care of, of uh, Project Mogul. And yet that's the explanation being offered. And that's when I say we get to the point where we have no terrestrial explanation. Mogul doesn't work. It's categorically not the answer. There were no lost missions from White Sands Proving Grounds launching their rockets and missiles in their tests. There were no military aircraft lost, no experimental aircraft lost. In 1947, the size and shape of the atomic bomb was the size and shape was classified. So had they inadvertently dropped one, and it would have been a mock-up, the 509th being the only um, bomber group in the world that would be carrying atomic bombs, and they had mock-ups and practice bombs, but there's no evidence of that either of that happening. So we're left with no terrestrial explanation. That's why I say, we, we, if eliminating all the terrestrial explanations that we know of, and had there been a terrestrial explanation, the Air Force would have trotted it out in the mid nineties when they investigated this thing, because anything that would have been classified in 1947 clearly would no longer be classified. Or if it was classified, they could get it declassified and trotted it out as the explanation. Mm -hmm. So when I say there's no terrestrial explanation, I mean, nothing has been found that was account for what was seen on the Brazel Ranch back in 1947. The only place left to go is the extraterrestrial. And I'm a little bit leery of hopping that fence without something a little more concrete than, well, we've eliminated everything else. But as Sherlock Holmes made a deal, when you've eliminated um, all the possible, only the improbable is left, that's probably the solution you have to go to. And I, I butchered his quote, so... <laughs> Forgive me for that, but the point simply is you've eliminated everything else. There's nowhere else to go but what would be improbable, which would be interstellar flight and a crash of an alien spacecraft. Is it Ramey that was in the picture with the weather balloon holding that piece of paper? There was General, yes, General Ramey was holding the piece of paper. General Ramey was in um, four photographs, I believe. Uh, Marcel was in two of the photographs. Ramey and his chief of staff, Colonel DuBose, were in two of the, of the photographs. And the seventh one was taken of Irving Newton, who was a weather officer at uh, Carswell Air Force Base, Fort Worth Army Airfield at the time, who um, was called in to identify the weather balloon and the uh, radar, radar target for them. So there were seven pictures that we know of. We found all seven of them. Yes, yeah, so it's General Ramey holding the piece of paper that you're talking about. And do you think that piece of paper has any significant information that it was a clue that he was trying to put out that it was a UFO and not a weather balloon? No, I don't know. Ramey wouldn't have done that. Uh, if Ramey's holding a piece of paper, it's clearly, it clearly has something to do with Roswell because we can read parts of it. You can read parts of it with a magnifying glass. And it talks about weather balloons and it talks about Fort Worth. And so we know what's going on there. It's a piece of paper that, that um, Ramey had. Um, J. Bon Johnson, the man who took the photograph, said he was a reporter from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. He said originally that he brought along the teletype message from the newspaper and he handed it to Ramey and that's what he has in his hand. He later said, no, that's not true. He hadn't done that because he realized that if he'd photographed General Ramey holding a teletype from the newspaper, the significance of that document is significantly reduced. Um, we have looked at that with everything you can possibly think of. I was just down in Fort Worth, Texas uh, several months ago where they were once again scanning it with the best equipment available. 
Um, it took the pictures down, some the, the scans took it down to the, uh, the microscopic level. They were looking at molecules of uh, material on the negatives. And of course, trying to layer it in to see if we could decipher it anymore. And we come to the point where we can almost read some of the stuff. There's a critical phrase. Uh, some people read it as victims of the wreck. And if you've got victims, you're suggesting something other than a weather balloon. Others read it as viewing of the wreck, which of course takes the victims out and changes the meaning significantly. And talking to the experts on this, they're telling me that they do not believe that there's any uh, possibility of us creating a technology that will allow us to read it um, with, with more scans or more deeper scans. We've gotten to the point where we're right down to the microscopic level. There's no more data to be found on that negative. Uh, there's all sorts of scans available. The next step is to look at it with artificial intelligence. And I just read something last week about uh, on the Dead Sea Scrolls, I believe it was, talking about how they had applied artificial intelligence to some of these new findings in the Dead Sea Scrolls and could determine, I think it was two people had written one of the scrolls. Two people were, handwriting was on one of the scrolls. And that's kind of where we need to go next is applying this artificial intelligence to the document to see if anything more can be made out of it that way. But I don't think there's anything else we're gonna be able to do with scans of it and, and the technology, no matter how our technology grows for scanning and all that, I don't think it's ever going to improve to the point where we'll be able to read that thing. As one of the guys who was doing some of this work told me once, he said, if the guy was only a, a foot closer and angled his count, count camera just a little bit different, we'd probably be able to read it very easily. But there's area, there's gray areas on the text. It, the paper is kind of folded in, in Ramey's hand, so it's wavy. Um, and there's various interpretations. There's five or six different interpretations available of, of people who have studied this thing from David Rudiak um, to um, people working with J. Bond Johnson, for example. I think uh, Ron Rediger has worked on this as well and come up with six or seven different interpretations of exactly what it says. There's really no universal agreement except on a very few places and a very few of the words. So then the next clue, I guess, would be to investigate the debris field. Has anybody found any mysterious metal out there? Well, that's, again, something that's been done repeatedly. I think Don Schmidt and I were among the first to attempt that mm -hmm. back in 1989 when we showed up with metal detectors and tried to find something that way based on the debris field where Mac Brazel took us. And so when people say, well, you guys weren't in the right place. I'm sorry, Bill Brazel, the son of Mac Brazel. He took us and he found some of the debris. I've got a picture of Don Schmidt and, um, and Bill Brazel standing by Brazel's pickup truck and Brazel saying basically, well, this is right around here where I found that debris. So we're on the debris field. We know where it is. Uh, Bill Brazel took us there. Uh, later on, the Center for the Study sponsored a archaeological site survey, which involved, I think, sinking of uh, dozens of test holes and, and screening the debris and looking for that trying to find something unusual. The science fiction channel had an expedition out there using archaeologists from the University of New Mexico and backhoes and all kinds of work there. And they bagged a whole bunch of uh, debris 
or samples that were taken and put into a bank vault. And of course, later on, they got in there and they bags it all rotted away and the debris, the, the dirt and everything is all mixed together. So that kind of blew that investigation. Uh, so yeah, people have tried that. I believe um, Frank Kimbler, who um, lives in Roswell, New Mexico, and has taken interest, interest in this, has found some materials he think is interesting. To this point, we have found nothing that is clearly demonstrable as extraterrestrial. There was a guy named Russell Vernon Johnson. Vernon Russell, I'm sorry. Russell Vernon Johnson. Vernon Russell? Guy named Vernon Russell. <laughs> <laughs> His name escapes me for the moment because he, he showed up in the 50th anniversary in 1997 with this, this story that he had analyzed some of the debris and uh, at, down to the isotopic ratios and said this was nothing created naturally on Earth. And everybody took that to mean, well, it's extraterrestrial. When we looked at it, uh, further, we discovered, well, yeah, we can make the same stuff here in the laboratory. So the fact that it wasn't naturally occurring on Earth doesn't mean it was extraterrestrial. And I think I think um, he backed off on his initial statements in Roswell when more questions were asked and other scientists became involved. So the point simply is, yeah, there's been a lot of investigation into the, the debris field, the impact point, uh, site surveys, archaeological surveys, recovery of materials, but nothing that leads us directly to the extraterrestrial yet, which means that some of the stuff that uh, Frank Himmler is doing may not lead us, uh, it may lead us there eventually, it hasn't gotten us there yet. So we're, we're, we're in that, that place where there's things to be done, those things cost money, they're time consuming, and we're all a bunch of volunteers working on this stuff, so we don't have the um, backing of the government to to follow up any deeper than that. But at the at the at the moment, we're we're just kind of at the point. Well, we haven't found anything. It may come in the future. I would be looking more for documentation and uh, confirmation from the government as opposed to something we might find on the debris field. Um, we need we need some uh, we need another we need to explore another arena. I guess is where I'm going with that. Has there been any deathbed confessions about it? Well, you know, technically there are no deathbed confessions because deathbed confessions, by definition, have to be confessions to a crime, mm -hmm. which is a fact I found <laughs> I years ago and and a little disappointing. Uh, when they talk about deathbed confessions, talking about people who knew they were close to. Uh, the end of life yeah. and talked about these things. And there have been those sorts of things. Deathbed confessions kind of leads us in the wrong direction. I think Walter Hott would be among those who said some things like that. There's a guy named Magruder who apparently said some things like that to his children. Um, so yeah, there have been those sorts of, of um, stories, but once again, um, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with testimony. Um, and we don't know what the motivations are of the people who are giving that testimony. Walter Hott clearly was in Roswell in 1947. And Walter Hott spent decades telling us the only thing he did was write the press release. He didn't see anything. He didn't know anything. And uh, in a couple of years prior to him, he began talking about, yes, there were bodies. But if you go back and you look at the interviews conducted at that time, he contradicts himself in, in the space of a single paragraph and sometimes in the space of a single sentence. So you can say that he was a guy who was suffering from 
some dementia, and I hesitate to, to, to throw that out because Walter Hott was a good guy and I don't want to demean him or belittle him, uh, but he may have been suffering from, from memory lapses and that sort of things brought on by old age. And um, he may have been conflicted about revealing stuff that he'd promised he wouldn't tell. And so that gives rise to his contradictory answers as well. So we've got to look at all of that stuff very carefully when we're studying the Roswell case and, and try to bring it about. Uh, Frank Kaufman, who was a, a witness we thought a great deal of, Don Schmidt and I, a long time ago, uh, it became clear after he had died that he'd been making up his story. Um, he was forging documents. We've got the original documents and the forgeries. So we know he was forging documents and he was telling a tale that wasn't, wasn't really true. He wasn't involved in the military in 1947. He lived in Roswell. He was working on the base, I guess, in a civilian capacity. He told Don and me he had been an intelligence NCO and worked in intelligence and trained in intelligence and gave us documents proving it. We got, when we got the official documents from St. Louis, the, the military has a big archive in St. Louis. It's part of the National Archives where all the military records go to live after the person is released from duty, retired, or however they are released from duty. They go there. And when we got his original documents from there, it was clear that he'd made up the documents that he had submitted to us earlier on. And so that kind of killed his credibility. So we have to look at all of that sort of thing. But in the realm of deathbed confections, we have some interesting testimonies given by people who were in their twilight years, but um, I, I think we need to move it out of the realm of deathbed confessions and realize that we're, we're dealing with something not quite as dramatic. Hmm. So what is the best evidence that we have? What we have basically is the newspaper story saying something fell. We have the agreements that ev from everybody that something fell. We have an FBI document uh, made on the date of all of this transpiring in Fort Worth. It's very interesting. And then we have the testimonies of the high-ranking individuals who are involved. And I'm thinking people like Edwin Easley, who was the base provost marshal. He, like the top cop, he was the chief of police of the military at, at the base. Um, and he told me, he was very, very reluctant to talk. He said repeatedly in my conversations with him that he had been sworn to secrecy and he wasn't gonna violate his oath. And I would ask him a question and he would say, I can't tell you that I was sworn to secrecy. Or if it was something that he didn't think impacted directly upon um, that secrecy, he would, tell, he would tell me things like, he told me Bill, or, I'm sorry, Mac Brazel was held in the guest house at the base in Roswell. Well, Mac Brazel had gone back home after he was released and he told everybody he'd been held in jail. And I'm thinking, well, the guest house isn't exactly jail but if there's a guard on the door and you're not allowed to leave, it's basically the same thing. So we know that Mac Basil was held there a number of days based on the testimonies. But uh, Edwin Easley, I asked him at one point, I said, are we following the right path? And he easily said to me, what do you mean? And I said, we think it's extraterrestrial. And he said, well, let me put it this way. It's not the wrong path, which in essence telling us, you know, here's a guy who, um, when you look at the, all his testimony and all his discussions, and I think most of them were with me, um, telling us 
as best he could that we were following the right path by going down the extraterrestrial. Jesse Marcel, of course, made it clear it was extraterrestrial. Um, Thomas DuBose, the chief of staff of 8th Air Force, made it clear that it was something unusual and something from another world. Only one top officer that we were able to interview from um, Roswell in that, in that time frame, uh, Colonel Barrowclaw, uh, sent a note to Kent Jeffrey. Kent Jeffrey had asked him about some of this stuff and, and, and sent him a copy of an article that Kent had written that kind of uh, his attempt to dismantle the Roswell case. And Barrowclaw sent him a nice note and says, well, now maybe people stop bothering me. So he was denying that anything happened. And he was the only top officer we were able to interview that suggested that. On the other side of the coin, Patrick Saunders, who was the base adjutant um, in the flyleaf of the UFO crash at Roswell, I believe it was, there was a, a, a blurb that talked about damage control. And it says talks about how they altered records and changed names and serial numbers and all of this. And on the top of that page, Patrick Saunders had written, um, you know, this is all true and I never told any, anybody anything about it. And so we have him actually creating a document clearly in the 1990s, but a handwritten document where he says, yeah, this is all true. So what we have is testimony and hints of things and a Herculean effort to cover this thing up. And you have to say what was so important in 1990, I'm sorry, 1947, right. that this secret would persist today. You know, if it was an experimental aircraft, nobody cares. 1947's technology is a half a century out of date. It's horse and buggy stuff. Um, atomic secrets, uh, they're all out. Uh, rocket testing in New Mexico. Uh, we've landed on the moon since then. That, that stuff is, is trivia. Mm -hmm. We can find nothing that, that fits into the Herculean effort they made to recover the debris and cover this whole thing up. So that kind of gets us into the idea of the best evidence. It's, it's what we uh, talk about with the witnesses, um, the, the credible witnesses, the people we've been able to vet, the people whose stories have remain, remained virtually unchanged. And I say virtually because people, as they tell a memory, gave a memory, uh, change it. I, I have a blog called VietnamGroundZero.blogspot.com, and I say it's the relatively uh, my my relatively true exper uh, experiences in Vietnam. And I wrote it because I, I started the blog because a series of books that Bob Cornett and I wrote in the 1980s, 1990s have been reissued, and it was a way of kind of promoting these books. And I had for a long time told people that my Thanksgiving meal in on Thanksgiving, 1968, was left uh, in the uh, on the serving line as we were going through because the flight crews had been scrambled, and so we left our 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 Thanksgiving meal there. Going through letters that I'd written home uh, that my mother mother had saved and I now have in possession, I was going through those as I was preparing this blog, and I found one that said that on Thanksgiving we had been deployed to Tainan. We weren't in Kuchi. They couldn't have scrambled the flight crews, and they had promised us a Thanksgiving meal while we waited for the mission to carry on. And then they made us pay for it. So um, the point simply is I have this memory of, of and, and, and it happened a number of times where the, where we were scrambled out of the mess hall, out of, we were in the middle of lunch, we were scrambled. 
um, for a follow-on mission or something had happened and we the flight crews were scrambled. So the, the story is true. The flight crews were scrambled. We left our food where, where it sat, but it didn't happen on Thanksgiving. My point simply is sometimes our memories fool us that way and we have to check it against documentation. And so I did a, I did a thing on my, my um, regular UFO blog, A Different Perspective, um, telling that story, explaining how these memories sometimes are altered in our memories that are 50 and 60 years old. So we have to be careful of those sorts of things. But I was able to verify our Thanksgiving story based on a letter I'd written home in the days that followed that. So we have to go with that. The, the sad thing is we have not found anything in the Roswell case. We haven't found a diary. We haven't found a letter. We haven't found anything dated 1947. We have a story that was written by Inez Wilcox. She was the wife of the sheriff, and she had had an idea of writing a story for Reader's Digest, um, and I hope everybody knows what Reader's Digest is. Uh, given in today's environment, I'm not sure they do. But she'd written this article called Four Years in the County Jail, and it was about her experiences as the matron in the jail when her husband was the county sheriff. And there's a paragraph in there about the UFO crash. The problem is... It was in addition to the original story. We know this because we have the original story and there's a point where it says add, add A and the, this paragraph is A. Um, we don't know when she wrote it. The only thing I was able to determine is that she had died in I think 1989, which means um, the Roswell story had broken in 1978 when, when Jesse Marcel talked to uh, Stan Friedman and Len Springfield. So the story had broken there. The book came out, I think, in 1980. And I'm absolutely convinced there would have been stuff in the newspapers, the Roswell newspapers about it in 1980, about the book coming out and what it said. There were documentaries um, in search of, which starred Leonard Nimoy, did a segment on the Roswell. That should have changed, changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, so so the fact that, that, that she could have written this after 1980 doesn't help us a whole lot. But it was her memory, and I can't conceive of her making something up about it, about them being bodies and that sort of thing based on um, in search of and that sort of thing, because uh, she talks about what her husband had told her about it. So we have some things like that that help us that's interesting, but we just don't have that one, I guess you'd say, smoking gun that is just irrefutable. You can, you can look at it. You can argue it from the other side of the coin and point out, well, this really doesn't get us there. Memories are flawed and people misremember stuff and the documentation comes out. We do have a story from Lydia Schleppi. She was the teletype operator at the, she wasn't at KGFL, she was at the station up in um, Albuquerque. The guy in Albuquerque owned a couple of stations, including um, the one in, in, in Roswell and she was typing something about this story and it came over the teletype, you know, ceased transmission immediately. And uh, that story was published in a magazine in 1976. And so we have these two paragraphs in a magazine article published in 1976 that relates to the story. And that, that is kind of interesting evidence there, but it really doesn't get us to the point we really want to be. Mm. So is the Roswell incident the beginning of this secrecy in deep state, or did 
the secrecy in Deep State exist prior to Roswell? Well, this, the Deep State is an idea that was, uh, I think, comes out of Turkey in the 1920s, where you have a shadow government. You have the government that everybody knows about, and then you have the government that's really running things. We had an incident here in the United States in the 1930s after Roosevelt was elected president. And there were a lot of people who were annoyed about this. There was a general named Smedley Butler, Marine general, a very, very famous, famous general. The only person that would have had three medals of honor had um, the the um, Marine, uh, Marines given the Medal of Honor to officers. He was, um, he did, he did end up winning or being awarded two Medals of Honor. He would have had three if it hadn't been for the bizarreness of the, um, of the uh, Marine Corps regulations at the time. But they had approached him because he was very popular with the public to become a chief of staff to the president with the idea chief of staff to Franklin Roosevelt with the idea he would really be running the government and Roosevelt would be kind of the figurehead. This is the beginning of the idea of a deep state. What they didn't count on was the general's um, honor. He wouldn't do it. He went to the newspapers. There's big investigation about this in the 1930s and they can, Congress investigated and all this and they decided, well, there's really nothing to this. I think there's a great deal to it. And I cover the whole story in the book about, about Butler and the newspapers and all of that sort of thing, because I think it's an important part of um, understanding how we got to this point where we are. So Butler, Butler, declined the opportunity and went public with it. And uh, you can you can look up Schmedley Butler on Wikipedia and you'll get some of this. And I think the, the, the and I say Wikipedia because it you can link to some of the newspaper articles and read them for yourselves. But that was the first attempt of, of setting up kind of an overt shadow government. I think where we are today with a shadow government is we've got bureaucrats that that are not elected to any office, but they're appointed by the administration who happens to be in power, and they often transcend those administrations, even when the power shifts from Democrats to Republicans, they still remain in those positions. And we've had a good example of some of this today with the, um, with the Biden administration appointing people to high government posts who worked in high government posts with the um, Obama administration, and some of them go back to the Clinton administration and the Bush, Bush administration. So we see these people carrying on and they're running an awful lot of this stuff. So we can see the shadow government, the secret government, the deep, deep state kind of controlling an awful lot of the information that's flowing, especially in today's environment. We see an awful lot of control of the media by um, various entities. And, 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 and the shadow, the, the deep state doesn't necessarily involve only governmental officials. You can see it in corporations and that sort of thing, controlling and manipulating the situation so they get the favorable outcome they're looking for. And I, I also wonder, one of the things I wonder is how many of the presidents we've elected in the last 75 years can trace their education back to um, the uh, Ivy League, you know, Harvard president, 
Princeton, Yale, that sort of thing. And you, and you wonder if there's some kind of cabal operating in there that positions these people into places of power. Uh, George H.W. Bush was the director of central intelligence, and then he became the vice president under Ronald Reagan and was elected president himself. And then his son is elected president. I mean, there's there's an example of the kind of the deep state maneuvering through our government, which is not to say they're necessarily part of the deep state, but you have to look at, you know, the important posts these people held uh, at, at the time. So you look at all of that sort of thing and you see the deep state um, manipulating the situations and changing the dialogue and changing the context of the discussions by uh, changing the, um, the meaning of words. Uh, we don't have a border crisis at the moment. We have a problem down there. Well, is it a crisis or is it a problem? And, and who's controlling how we look at that sort of thing and the words we use? Wasn't it, uh, was it uh, the AP? Somebody just said we cannot, they don't want their, their people using the term illegal immigrants anymore. They're now just merely immigrants. And that's a manipulation of the data. And who's, who's pushing that agenda uh, that sort of thing. So it's all part of the deep state operation and it comes into the UFO field. And I bring it into the UFO field this way. Um, I studied anthropology when I was an undergraduate. There was a tribe, a group of, of indigenous people that was going to be studied by an anthropologist. And there was a societal ritual. If you needed to borrow an axe, and these were stone axes, you had to work your way through a, a layer, layer of bureaucracy, if you will, to get to the people who could give you permission to use the axe. They had like four or five stone axes. And if you needed it, you had to work your way up to talk to the, the leaders of the society to get a permission to, to borrow a stone axe. Well, the anthropologist came in and to induce the people to talk to him, he gave them steel axes. A steel axe is a much superior axe than a stone axe. And what he had done was undercut part of the societal, um, the societal necessities for getting a stone axe. He had eliminated a necessity to go talk to the, um, the leaders that way. The introduction of the technology. And I think that brings us into the UFO field. We're talking about an introduction of a technology and the mere idea that interstellar flight is possible introduces a new level of technology that may uh, cause problems for those in the deep state because it suggests something more powerful than they are. It makes sense. Definitely makes sense. Um, who are these deep state people and how did they get in those positions to begin with? I think they're kind of selected at birth. John, oh, I, uh, Kennedy, the Kennedy family, they said it was at... Uh, John Kennedy's older brother, and I forget his name, the older brother who was killed during World War II. They were grooming him to be president. And when he was killed, then John inherited that mantle uh, to become president. And, and when John got into the White House, who did he appoint? Well, he appointed his brother as the attorney general, for example. He appointed a lot of the, the people that he knew in, into their positions of power. And it's not just saying the Kennedys did that. Everybody did that. Mm. Um, you know, bring in your friends, but but it all relates back to the idea of, you know, where where were they educated? When was this decided? Who did they decide? Uh, you look at the people who move in the power circles today. 
Um, they may have entered it through their connections from college, their connections from childhood, uh, that sort of thing. And they're brought into this because they're sort of indoctrinated into the deep state and think it's their birthright, I guess you would say, to to operate in those arenas. Is this limited to just the United States government or are there other governments involved? I would, I, I think we can take a look at some of the other world governments and say, yeah, there's, uh, the deep state may not be deep in, in some of the other co co countries. It's a very overt. Um, and I won't mention any names, China. That might be a good example. <laughs> but possibly, possibly, and again, I won't mention any names, North Korea, as, as, as an indication of the deep state operating in, in those, those nations as well. You can look at England. I mean, you have, I, I think the power of the monarchy has been reduced over the last couple of centuries, but you still have them in a position of power in the uh, in the British Isles or in the United Kingdom. And I think you look at um, all those sorts of monarchies, you, you've got that, that similar sort of thing. Once you gain power, you're very reluctant to give it up. I mean, there are examples, and I think of what, was it Edward VIII who abdicated the throne so he could marry uh, an American woman? So sometimes you get into these positions of power and you don't want them anymore. And, and you abdicate that, but I, I think it. I think it. You look at it uh, on a worldwide scale. Yeah, there's a deep state operating through that, and they, all these people have connections through um, uh, their their upbringing, who they know, where they traveled, where they went to school, that that sort of thing, who they served in the military with. Um, is their agenda nefarious? Like, is, are, they, are they evil, or is it just? about profit no it's about power power it's about power they will do what they need to do to retain power and how you know we're seeing we're seeing boy and i hesitate to say this but we're seeing a great divide in this country and i think part of it's manipulated by the deep state to divide our populations oh, of course absolutely and, and, and we see we see um, these these stories the mainstream media leave stuff out all the time. I don't know how many stories we've seen like that where the story, they've manipulated the data. And, and we, you know, I can think of any number of examples. I think it was NBC News was, was um, outraged at the side saddle um, gas tanks on, was it Ford pickup trucks or Chevrolet pickup trucks? That if you got into a side collision, a T-bone type collision, they would burst into flames and kill people. And they were running the test to show you exactly how it happened, and they couldn't get it to happen. So they used little rocket igniters, you know, model rocket igniters. Mm -hmm. So when the, the two vehicles crashed, they got the fireball. But they manipulated the situation. And, and I don't mean to single them out. Uh, back in the days, there was stories that the Pintos, if you hit, if you were hit from the rear, the Pintos would burst into flames. I had one. And, and I, I lost the article. I used to have an article I cut out from the Des Moines Register it said, woman killed in Pinto crash. And you read the article, and it was because she wasn't wearing her seatbelt and she was ejected from the car. But you read the headline, and you, given the, uh, the, the idea that was being per perpetuated at the time that the Pinto was unsafe because it would explode, you got the idea from the headline that that's what happened, but it had nothing to do with the fact it was a Pinto was irrelevant to the story. <laughs> but you see these kind of manipulations. We had CBS News. Um, going after President Bush um, 
because they just didn't want him to be president anymore. And they, they concocted this story about his National Guard service that turned out to be a manipulation of documentation, fake documentation um, that, that fooled CBS News. And uh, Dan Rather lost his job over it. And I've, I've you know, seen the story and all of this, and, and we have the, the woman saying, well, the person who forged these documents would have had to been here in Texas, and he would have had part of this, and he would have had to know this, this, and this. And I said, no. All he had to do was have some sample documents, and he could copy those. And that's what we saw with MJ-12. A lot of documents that looked authentic, had the proper time codes, had everything on them proper. They mentioned MJ-12, the insertion of MJ-12 into it. And when you go back and you look, you can find the original document. The mentions of MJ-12 weren't there. Same sort of thing with this with this um, scandal with CBS News. And 60 Minutes just got caught a couple of weeks ago with uh, editing an interview with the Florida governor where they took out some of the critical information you needed. Uh, my point being simply, you've got this time and time again. And then, uh, you know, we've seen the newspapers get caught that way, manipulated. We, we spent four years talking about Russian collusion and helping the Trump campaign. And it turned out to be all bogus. And yet we still hear how about, well, yeah, the Russia, the Russians are manipulating, manipulated the, the, um, the uh, election, but but in in 2016 they had nothing to do with it, mm-hmm. uh, other than trying you know, whatever they did. But they, the Trump campaign was not in collusion with the with the Russians. I think that's been clearly demonstrated now. But we still get all that manipulation from the media. We get that manipulation from the government. We have the uh, press secretaries telling us stuff that's simply not true. And granted, there are times they have to lie. And the thing I think of as the best example is after Gary Powers was shot down in his U-2 over the Soviet Union. And President Eisenhower came out and said, we're not spying on the Soviet Union. We're not doing that sort of thing. And then they trotted out Gary Powers and proved that the president was lying to us about the spying operation. But then again, he had to lie about it because he didn't want the Soviets to know that we were spying on them, even though they now had the evidence. So uh, you have to look at all of that sort of thing. Um, I rambled on here and I didn't mean to do that. Oh, that was really interesting. So, so there's definitely a lot of moving parts in this deep state, you know, with all the bureaucracy. It's almost impossible to pin down. Um, I was reading this history, like this week I was reading about it. I had never heard about it before, is the idea that, that behind the deep state, there's a group called the Four Horsemen. And it's four people, I don't know who they are, and they work together and against each other, jockeying for power. Have you ever heard that? Well, I ran into some of that when I was researching this book, but it didn't really fit into the context of the book, so I didn't explore it as deeply as I could. But there's always been the rumors that there's a very, very small elite group running everything. Um, they they took a big hit in 1776 when we kind of cut our ties with Great Britain or England. Um, but they've managed to manipulate their way back into, uh, I think they've manipulated their way back into certain levels of our government at this point. But I've, I've heard that uh, there is a very small group, and I've heard various names for it, like Berkebinders and the Illuminati, mm-hmm. uh, as, as just two examples of, of this, and uh, how they managed to um, keep all of this under wraps as they manipulate the, the world around them for 
to maintain their own power. And with that power, of course, become comes the wealth. I don't think the wealth is the, the most important part. I think it's the power that's the most important part. Do you think that any of these, you know, there's always a usual group of suspects that's thrown out at this type of, um, you know, group. Usually the Rockefellers, Rothschilds, Morgan Stanley, Bilderbergs. Do you think any of them are behind it or all of them? I wouldn't be surprised if some of them are. Um, you know, I, I and, and that was what I was talking about. You know, you go back to the people educated in the Ivy League and they're mm-hmm. moving up into the seats of power in the government. So you can look at it from that point of view. It's those people who, whose people gets whose whose children get into the Ivy League schools. Right. Yeah. It's almost like, like a caste system now. Yeah. And, and, you know, they disguise it with, um, uh, allowing others, <laughs> recruiting others at the other end of the spectrum, the, the least <laughs> powerful people in our society by, by encouraging them to come to the schools. But, uh, the, the, the elites always end up at those schools. Um, and we saw some of the manipulation last year where they got caught and not very clever. And I don't think really part of the deep state, but we had a number of people attempting to buy their children's way into prestige schools. And uh, some of them have, uh, you know, we, we, we went through all of that and some of them saw jail time, although not very much jail time. Right. But we saw some of that, uh, but I don't think that's really part of the deep state. I think that's just kind of a side issue. And I think it gives you a, a glimpse of how it might work, mm-hmm. but the, the the deep state is much more subtle than those people were. Right, that was like almost like celebrities trying to buy their way into the deep state. I well, I I think it's more of them trying to take care of their children and make sure they get to go to the prestige schools, and that way it opens up other doors that wouldn't be open to uh, to those of mm-hmm. us who didn't go to uh, prestige schools. I mean, we went to the state schools. I went to the University of Iowa, for example. Yeah. Which is a which was a good school. I think it ranked uh, it, it was ranking in the top ten of party schools for a while. <laughs> I hope it's fallen out of that by now. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's not a prestige school right. like a Harvard or a Yale or a Princeton or a right. Columbia or any of those schools you care to name. Well, I grew up in Princeton, so I know all about the Ivy League. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. I won't lecture you anymore on the Ivy League then. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I've always just, I've always felt it was like, uh, you know, the United States version of the caste system that keeps certain people elevated and other people down. Yeah, it certainly is. Um it's, it's not quite as structured as the caste system in India, right. but there certainly is, a, is a, a, a level to that. And, you know, how do you, if you're, if you're outside that system, how do you work your way into it? Um, because I think you're always going to be sp- suspicious of those of us who were not, who not, who didn't come up uh, the same way. You know, you could have earned your way into a Harvard or a Princeton and, made friends with some of these people and found yourself in positions of power in the government as a result of that. But I don't know if you could work your way into the deep, deep, deep state. Right. Interesting. Um, Do you think that, uh, what is the biggest threat to the deep state? Do you think it is, um, 
humans making contact with the aliens without the middleman of the government? Or do you think it's something even simpler, like humans realizing their true potential? Well, I think that that one of the things would be a news media that actually did reporting. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> that would be helpful. Shine a light on the on the deep state and and get away from the partisan politics of how you're running your organization, whether you're left or right or in the middle. I mean, if you were in the middle and you were doing good reporting, I'd be on board with you. Mm-hmm. The problem with UFOs is the deep state can't control them. If alien spacecraft land tomorrow in a location where it can't be covered up and hidden, then that threatens the deep state because that technology threatens the power of the deep state. If suddenly we got universal power, some little device that that, that operated on sunlight that was reliable and stored the energy, um, so that you you could recharge you could recharge during a sunny day and it, the charge would last for several days. Uh, of course, if you're in some of these places where it's cloudy all the time, you're pretty well screwed. But that's a whole other <laughs> argument. But, but the point simply is, you know, you get you get something like that. Well, then you 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 harmed, destroyed, upset any number of industries, from the oil industry to the uh, electrical companies and that sort of thing. And now everybody has access to this little power source. They don't need that. It, and that and that destroys power structure. And I think that's what they fear with UFOs is the admission that we are being visited by alien pe- creatures. Ex- interstellar flight is possible. And they know how to do it. We don't. Um, that suggests a superior civilization, superior, superior technology, and that threatens the power of the deep state. I think that's part of the problem we run in today with studying UFOs is that knowledge um, threatens the power of the deep state. Who should we be more afraid of, extraterrestrials or the deep state? Well, obviously the deep state, because they're operating on Earth, and the extraterrestrials, as far as we know, are not really operating on Earth in the sense of the deep state operating. They're not controlling our governments. They're not controlling our societies. Um, They're just out there watching us. Um, So I don't think... And the other thing is, I think in 1947, when they were presented with the Roswell crash, they didn't know what they had. They didn't know what it meant. They didn't know if there was an invasion fleet standing off by the moon ready to take over the planet. They didn't know. But as time passed and nothing happened, they realized that they didn't need to confront the UFO problem head on. They could make uh, statements to it and, and divert attention. Is what, and, and that's exactly what they did through Project Blue Book and various UFO projects and various statements by the government. Uh, the Robertson panel in 1953, which suggested there was nothing to it and it should be debunked. And the Condon Committee that said there was nothing to it. But the uh, Air Force did a good job of investigating it to where we are now with the Navy releasing these videos. And I, um, on my blog, A Different Perspective, I pointed out that one of the videos that they released uh, is duplicated by a YouTube video where a guy appended a, a cell phone camera to a night vision device 
and got similar artifacts, these triangular-shaped or pyramid-shaped objects uh, on his on his cell phone camera. And so that led John Greenwald and me to speculate that maybe this was Condon 2.0. In other words, here's something very mysterious. Oh, yeah, it's an artifact created by the... Uh, by the integration of our video equipment and our um, various technical devices here. So uh, it, it takes us away from UFOs again. It, it shuts down the interest in UFOs because, well, there's nothing to it. And this latest stuff all blew up in our faces. So we wonder about that sort of thing going on. But the answer to the question is, here we are. If we take it back to the beginning of the modern era, UFOs back to the the beginning of the modern era, which I believe was World War II with the Foo Fighters. And when the war ended, identifying the Foo Fighters became unimportant because obviously it didn't affect the war. It would no longer affect the war effort because the war was over. You had the Swedish ghost rockets in 1946 with similar thing. They eventually were able to suppress that information and stop interest in it. And the sightings all stopped. So you get, you start in, in, in the, toward the late parts of World War II. Um, and then you look up to 1947 when we get the answer to it. And we so we've, we've got um, literally 80 years of this information being out in the public arena, so to speak, and nothing has happened. They're, the invasion fleet hasn't arrived. They haven't really interacted with the environment. They haven't introduced their technology to us so that um, they are really no threat to our societies at this point, and that therefore they are no threat to the deep state. I will mention that there was a Brookings study that was done in the 1960s, and the conclusion was, and it's a very small part of this Brookings study, which said that when a technologically superior civilization meets with a technologically inferior civilization, the technologically uh, inferior civilization will cease to exist, not necessarily by conflict, not necessarily by warfare, not by invasion, the mere introduction of that technology. And we had a good example when the uh, Spanish began the exploration of the New World, the local indigenous populations didn't have, a, have the same kind of a nomadic um, society that developed with the introduction of the horse. In other words, the introduction of the horse changed that society, changed, changed the number of the, the, the local societies completely because of the maneuverability, the way they could, the mobility, I should say, of sure. them. And then yeah. the introduction of other aspects of the technology. A iron pot for cooking is much better than a clay pot. And you have to know things, how to make the iron pot that you do not have to know to make the clay pot, the introduction of firearms. And well, I think in the very, very beginning, the bow and arrow might've been the superior weapon because you could load and fire it a lot faster than you could a musket. The introduction of the cartridge and the repeating rifle uh, changed that dynamic as well. So we saw a destruction of the societies. And, and, and when we talk about, of course, the indigenous populations, an awful lot of them were destroyed by conquest. But I think the technology would have would have eventually altered them radically anyway, uh, which is not to say what would, what happened was a good thing. Only that the change was inevitable, given the introduction of the technologies. Do you think any of the technology that we have today is the result of reverse engineering of a UFO that was released so. through the uh, private sector? I don't think so. I think that. Um, 
I, I used to describe it this way, and my description now falls, I think, on deaf millennial ears because they don't know what I'm talking about. But back in the old days when we had videotape, um, if you took a videotape, tape player, and a television back to Merlin the Magician, and you showed him that you, if you knew the secrets, you could get pictures and sound off this device, like magic. But to understand that, you had to understand two things that were invisible, magnetism and electricity. I believe that the technology that would have been recovered would have been that kind of superior technology that we do not understand it. Uh, when they point to the things that may have been an outgrowth of the re reverse engineering of the Roswell craft, for example, we can see the precursors to these inventions prior to the Roswell crash, you know, uh, the transistor batteries and, and, and uh, radios, transistors and, and uh, that sort of thing predated the, the Roswell case, the Roswell crash. The only thing I could think of that we might have reversed engineer out of it, and I, I, I don't really think this is right, would be the composite, met composite metals, the, um, the layering of metals and, and fibers and uh, carbon fibers and things like that to create lightweight, stronger materials, because that we could understand. But when you get into the electronics and how the things work, that may be based on technology we simply don't understand, and we do not know the secrets for cracking it. And as our technology advances, I think we apply that technology to attempt to understanding that, but I don't think that we've, got, we've gotten there yet. So the answer, that's a long-winded way to say no. I don't think the te technology has been reverse engineered. The technology we have today has been reverse engineered from anything we've seen um, in, the, in the recovery of, the, of um, UFO components. And what was it that Bob Lazar was uh, trying to reverse engineer? I, I'm, I'm just not thrilled with Bob Lazar's testimony. I know George Knapp is. Mm -hmm. I think George Knapp got mad at me once for, for saying I didn't believe Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar is an interesting fellow, but I, I don't think that he really had much to do in the way of reverse engineering. I think that uh, if he saw anything at Area 51, it was by happenstance and that he has created this mythology around what he saw and apparently claimed to have worked on at um, at Area 51. But I think I think it's a little bit of a uh, embellishment from what he really saw and what he really did. I used to work at Bell Labs, and when I was at Bell Labs, <clears throat> this is back where I still smoke cigarettes. <laughs> I was outside smoking a cigarette, and um, there was a guy out there who was smoking a pipe. And at the time, I was a um, an IT consultant. You know, and he asked me, like, "Hey, what, what, you know, what is your job here?" And I was like, "Oh, I was just here, you know, doing IT stuff." And he told me that he had worked. That he he told me that he had worked at uh, Area Fifty One, and that the technology that we got for silicone chips and for fiber optics came from the UFO. But I think if you look at the scientific journals and the scientific evidence, you mm -hmm. see all of that was in the works prior to 1947. Mm -hmm. There was no great leap forward in the technology you would expect. And while he may have seen some of this stuff and it may have suggested things to them, I think the inspiration for these 
things were were pretty much already in the in the pipeline. Yeah, you, know, you look at the ancient astronauts, and the, the question I always have for them is: they supposedly um, traveled to Earth. Obviously, they had a, a metallurgy; they understood metallurgy because they had to build a spacecraft, and I can't see you building a spacecraft out of a rock. And they get back to Earth in ancient Egypt, and the only building material they can find is stone. You know, I would think we would have seen a uh, leap in the te technology of metallurgy or something. Somebody would have taught them how to make proper metals or how to make stronger metals or things like that. We just don't see those sorts of things. And um, so he may well have uh, worked on something like that. He may well have been told it was from UFOs. They may have lied to him about where they got it. Disinformation, yeah. Um, but I, we just don't see the great technological leap that you would have expected. We can we can trace the evolution, as I guess the, way, the best way to put it, the evolution of these devices and these things that that have developed and they, they've developed prior to um, 1940, 47. Television, we were, we were on the track for television um, long before World War II. I think the first television broadcast was, no, I shouldn't say broadcast, television, yeah, broadcast was made in like 1929. It was, you know, closed circuit type thing, but a guy created a way of doing that television. And I think the first televised game was like 1939, if I remember correctly. And, and, and I, I believe it was pre-World War II. And then of course, World War II derailed all of that research because there were much more important things we had to do like right now this minute. And, and so the, um, uh, evolution of television and that sort of thing was sort of put on hold until we got out of the World War II. And I think some of that technology from World War II was applied to television that made it um, made it made it come about as well. But but uh, I just don't see a great leap of technology that you would expect. Um, you know, if you say, well, fiber optics just appeared suddenly. But we go back and we look at some of the scientific research and we can see that there were precursors of this. It, it evolved and there doesn't seem that great been, been that great leap of technology. Hmm. So so where do you stand as far as the UFO subject as a whole goes? Um, do, do you believe that what we're experiencing in the skies and is extraterrestrial? Um, and do you think they're just observing us? We have no real indication of any attempts to for long-term communication. I believe my bias leans toward the extraterrestrial, um, and I've done I've done any number of books looking at specific cases. Uh, Leveland, Texas, springs to mind, right? Which um, on November second, third, nineteen fifty-seven, were. Uh, close approaches of these UFOs, stalled car engines, caused headlights to fade, filled radios with static. And people at, as far as I can tell, 13 separate locations uh, reported this in a matter of hours. There was no, no national media, nobody was on their cell phone saying, gee, my car just stalled um, type thing to kind of feed the information. So there was independent witnesses telling basically the same stories. Um, Clearly, there's no explanation for level land. The Condon Committee, when they investigated UFOs, they ignored it completely. I think there's a single reference to level land in that entire project. And they said, well, we, we, we couldn't really investigate it because it's 10 years old. And we couldn't find the cars, which really is irrelevant. Um, but we, we did talk to this one lady, and she talked about how her car had been stalled by the, by the close approach of a UFO. But 
they found all kinds of problems with the car, which may have caused the, the problem she had. So they dismissed the idea. And they also said, we know of no mechanism in which you could stall a car engine with a magnetic field. And when you remove that magnetic field, the car would spontaneously restart. And that got me to thinking, and, and I, I mentioned this in a, in a book or two, and I mentioned it on my blog, that if you go through, uh, Mark Roderick did a book on vehicle interference, and there's like four or 500 cases in there. And you go through that, you find very few of them where the people say the car spontaneously restarted. Normally, you find out that once the UFO left, the car could be started. The car started again normally. Yes. Well, that means they kind of twisted the key for crying out loud. There are cases where I said, when, when the UFO left, I could start my car. And I think that the conduct committee just dismissed it because they didn't want to have to deal with that. And they found an easy way to do it by this misperception that the car started spontaneously. I think that's a very good case suggesting some kind of an extraterrestrial um, encounter. And, and there's other cases like that, that that suggest that my bias leans toward the extraterrestrial. I've argued with skeptics. Some of them are very reasonable people and we end up disagreeing to disagree. And some of them are just um, what we would call debunkers. People, there's no alien visitation, ergo, anything you have that suggests it must be an error uh, type, type arguments. Well, I can't explain it, but it must be a hoax because you can always fall back on the hoax. Well, it was a hoax. It was a hoax. So um, my bias is toward the extraterrestrial, but I will say that I don't think it's nearly as prevalent as being reported. And I think almost everybody who's investigated UFOs with any kind of a um, dispassionate view realizes that 95, 96, 98% of the sightings are of mundane objects. I did my PhD dissertation on the identification of ambiguous stimuli based on our belief structure influence on the identification of ambiguous stimuli. And what I discovered was if you had a predisposition to believe in UFOs, then if you saw this ambiguous stimuli, a light in the distance, you tended to identify it as an alien spacecraft. If you believed in the paranormal, you identified it as ghosts. If you were very, very religious, you identified it as an angel meaning your belief structure influences how you identify an ambiguous stimuli. My first, my first memory of a UFO investigation, I was in high school, and a friend of mine's mother had seen a UFO. And so I got, I said, well, can I talk to her about it? And they said, yeah, come on. So I went over to talk to her about it. The only question I wanted answered was, was it a distinct object or was it a blur of light? I got the whole story from her. But that was the only thing I was really searching for because in the 1960s, that was the thing you heard. Well, they're just seeing these lights in the night sky. They don't mean anything. And I talked to her and she said it was hovering like 200 feet above the barn. She got a very good look at it. This, the edges were very distinct and very clear. It wasn't a fuzzy shape in the distance. It wasn't a fuzzy light in the distance. It was a very distinct object. And that was the question I wanted answered. And so I, I look for those sorts of things as well. And yes, we have a lot of people who see lights in the night sky. Heineck labeled them as, Dr. Jalen Heineck labeled them as nocturnal lights and found them pretty much meaningless. And yeah, if there's not a lot of witnesses and they don't get a good shape and you don't get a good look at it, it's pretty much meaningless. In Leveland, although it took place at night, you've got people with the, the UFO interacting with the environment, stalling the car engines. You have got um, 
multiple witnesses over a wide area describing a very distinct object. Uh, some said it was torpedo shaped, some said it was oval, some said it was oblong. The, the point is it depends on the angle you saw it, um, giving you an idea of the shape of it, especially if it's surrounded by a bright light. Uh, so you know, you look at those cases and you say, yeah, there really is no explanation. The Air, Force, the Air Force said, well, it was ball lightning. Overlooking the fact that ball lightning is very, very rare. Ball lightning is very short-lived. They la It lasts a matter of seconds. And it's rarely larger than 18 inches in diameter. And it's a ball of basically lightning. And it will go out with a pop. And, they, and in 1957, science was still arguing about the reality of ball lightning. But they appended <laughs> this to the explanation for level land. So... Um, you know, you have to look at all of that sort of thing, but but my bias is toward the the extraterrestrial. But I would like, I would like that classic case where, you know, you've got multiple chains of evidence. You've got it seen on radar. You've got photographs from multiple independent locations. You've got independent witnesses. You've got landing traces. You've got like four different chains of evidence, and it's impossible to ignore them all. And we really don't have a case like that. We have cases that come close, that have the multiple witnesses, that may have the radar sightings, that may have the photograph, have photographs, but you don't have anything that's combined into that one great, great UFO case. So we have the sightings. Um, you know, like we were talking before the show, you and I have a mutual friend. Actually, we're sure we probably have a lot of mutual friends, but we were talking about Terry Lovelace. And, you know, what do you think about his situation where he was abducted? I don't really understand it. Um, I've always thought that if abductions are real, they would be more like the Barney and Belly, Betty Hill case, mm -hmm. the Travis Walton case the um, Hickson-Parker case from Pascagoula, Mississippi, where it's sort of a target of opportunity. The thing's down there, we need some some um, subjects, and they, they target these people because they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Very leery of these longitudinal studies that go on for years, people saying they were abducted repeatedly. I'm very, very skeptical of those because it seems that the logistics would prohibit it, meaning the logistics of interstellar flight. And if they have time travel, that changes the whole argument. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I found Terry Lovelace's um, story very, very interesting. And, and as I've mentioned, I mentioned to him that he kind of inspired the book UFOs in the Deep State. And I cover his case in the book um, because of his interactions with the Air Force OSI. And that was that was kind of the reason I started this research was after having interviewed him and talked to him. Uh, and the interaction with the o Air Force OSI, I thought that would make an interesting book. And I, I contacted a publisher with a, a proposal on that and called it UFOs and the AFOSI and the, and the Deep State. And the publisher said, well, you know, people aren't going to know what the AFOSI is. And you can't say UFOs and the Air Force of Office and Special Investigation. But we really like this deep state idea. And so I kind of changed the emphasis to the UFOs in the deep state with, an, with, with a, a segment that deals with the AFOSI. And it was his contact with the AFOSI that, that caught my interest and in their manipulation of the data and what they happened. And again, if you could say, well, this was just one guy telling us. But I talked to John Burroughs and Jim Penniston and Charles Halt from Rendlesham Forest, the Bentwaters case from the 1980s. 
And you find out everybody that was involved in those sightings were interrogated by the AFOSI. And um, they were uh, um, subjected to chemical and hypnotic regressions, with the exception of Colonel Halt. He says, no, they didn't do that to me. And I'm thinking, ah, you might be in denial, pal. Um, but he says, no, they didn't. They didn't interview him that way, but they, they did everybody else. And we have the same thing going on with with um, Terry Loveless and his experiences with his abduction. And I find that very, very interesting. So I look at in the final section of the book, I look at um, the Air Force investigations into these specific abductions, simply because the Air Force was directly involved that we know of in the investigation. We, if we look at Pascagoula, um, I think Hickson and Parker were taken to Keesler Air Force Base for some kind of physical examination, but there doesn't seem to be the kind of, of, of um, investigation that were, or the, the investigative techniques that were suffered by um, Terry Loveless and uh, Penniston and Burroughs and the guys at Bent Waters. It, it doesn't seem to uh, reach that level of intrusive investigation. So I look, I look at that as um, very, very interesting, and I, I explore it from that point of view. Here's the Air, Air Force OSI. Why are they engaging in these investigations if there is nothing to them? Is there possibly a terrestrial explanation for what Loveless saw, what the guys at Bentwater saw? Possibly, but it doesn't seem to be, and it seems that, that they were Herculean efforts to A, keep the people from really sharing the information with one another, and, and B, the level of intrusive investigation that took place um, because they happened to be military personnel. I think with Bentwater, John Burroughs is the first guy ever to get a 100% disability uh, from, from the military based on his encounter with a UFO. Uh, he said that's where all the problems stem from, and he eventually got his full disability from the government because of that close encounter with the UFO. So I look at the, I look at that sort of thing, and I find it extremely interesting that for something that doesn't exist, according to them, and it, and if you call the Air Force and you ask them, well, there's nothing to these things here. If you're if you're feel threatened, call the local uh, law enforcement agencies. But they spend an awful lot of time after the end of Project Blue Book, um, in the 1970s and the 1980s and beyond, investigating these things in depth. Hmm. Um, one of the rumors that's floating around now is that there's going to be some type of disclosure in June. What do you think that, do you think there is going to be some type of disclosure from um, our government? And what do you think it might be? If you'd asked me that question two years ago, right after the release of the first videos, Navy videos, I'd have said, yeah, we've taken a step closer to, to disclosure. You ask me that question today, which you have, I say no. I don't see any motivation for them to disclose. I think we're being led down the prim road path. And we've been led down this road before where they where it seemed disclosure was right around the corner and it something happens and it takes us away. Jimmy Carter, when he was elected president, promised to uh, reveal everything he knew. I, you know, and I discussed that in depth in the book about how, and, th and this gives you an idea of how the deep state operates. I said at one point, that if I was president of the United States and I wanted the information on UFOs, they couldn't withhold it from me because I'm the president. I bring in my DCI, Director of Central Intelligence, or my Secretary of the, Air, the, 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 the uh, Defense, and I say, I want to know about UFOs. They say, well, you know, Mr. President, 
You just don't have the clearance and the need to know. And my answer is, you're fired, bring in your deputy. And I'm going down the line till I get the guy that's going to tell give me the answer. But in talking to uh, Dan, Daniel Sheehan about this, when Jimmy Carter became president, he wanted the answers. George Bush was the DCI, Director of Central Intelligence. And this was before Jimmy Carter was sworn in. have to make that caveat. And Carter said that he wanted to know what the deal was with UFOs. And Bush said, Mr. President, I'd like to stay on as the Director of Central Intelligence when you are inaugurated. Carter said to him, I'm sorry, I'm bringing my own guy in. And Bush said, you have no need to know, I can't tell you. And there was nothing that Carter could do at that point because he hadn't been inaugurated. But it also showed the power of the deep state and the DCI in that sense because Carter asked the question and it was denied. Um, apparently there were some suggestions made on how he could get to that answer, but it never came out. You find yourself, I think when you move into the presidency, you've got these things that you would like to know and these questions you'd like to have answered. And I think what happens is you ask the question of the guys and they say, we'll get your report. We got to pull some stuff together to make it as comprehensive as possible. We'll get back to you on that. And the president says, okay. And then other things intrude. With Jimmy Carter, it was the taking of the hostages um, in Tehran. And he just never got the answer. They just kept putting out, we're gathering the information for you. They don't say, no, you can't have it. They're saying, we'll get that for you. We just don't have it at our fingertips. We thought these other things were priority. We'll get to work on that right for you now. I think we're going to end up with a similar circumstance. They're going to come out with a report in June, supposedly, <laughs> going to the um, intelligence committee, I think, in a classified version, and then there'll be a redacted version released to the public, supposedly. So we're not going to get the whole story, and they may expand the deadline. I've already heard that they're not going to make the June deadline. They're going to have to. They're going to have to delay it a little bit because of all these other things going on. But I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's just another one of these things. And I think that, and as I said, that that the latest videos released by the Navy that can be duplicated um, simply, I think, are going to uh, be explained as artifacts. And that's going to be kind of Condon 2.0. Well, it was very interesting, but there's really nothing to that. And it may be it to come out in that report. Well, here we have these things that we thought were very, very interesting, but it turns out the videos we got are really an artifact based on the way the digital video equipment interacts with the night vision devices, and it's a, an artificial construct inside these devices and has nothing to do with alien spacecraft. And I think that's where we're going to, and so it's going to, it's going to blow up and everybody's going to say, well, see, they, they, they said they had something and it turned out to be mundane. I think that's where we're going to go. Uh, that's going to be a bummer, but I totally expect that also. You know, I <laughs> don't. The point, the point is they have no motivation. Yeah. To really release it. They haven't. The deep state has no motivation to release that information because it is going to affect their power. I, I agree. I, I didn't. I don't expect anything to come out either. You know, I've had one guest who insisted that they were going to come out with disclosure and then within two years that there was going to be contact. Now, I don't, I don't know why he 
you know, what the motivation behind that is. But he is somebody we, in Washington. We go back to the history of UFOs, and we've seen this time and time again. Predictions of disclosure, predictions of contact. We were supposed to have contact by 2000. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been following this for uh, 40 years now. <laughs> well, you're a piker then. I've been I've been involved for 50. For 50 <laughs> some ridiculous number. Yeah, I'm still new. <laughs> I'm old and decrepit. Uh, but I mean, I, 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 I followed this thing for quite a quite a while, and I've seen this going on. I mean, everybody held up great hopes for the Condon Committee. You know, here we're going to get the answer. We're going to get scientific investigation, and we find out before the first investigation was begun, the Air Force told the Condon Committee what to find. You will find we did a good job of investigating. You will find there is no national security implication, and you will suggest that we close the project. That's exactly what they found after 18 months of investigation. And I linked the letter. It's from a Robert Hippler to Robert Lowe, who was, I think, the deputy or the number two guy on the Condon Committee, tell him exactly what to find. And Lowe says, we got no problem with that. And I linked to that stuff on my blog. You can go type in Hippler letter and it'll take you right to the, uh, the documentation. Do you think that the dark, uh, the deep state would um, do a mass extermination of humans? Um. I can point to any number of times where somebody has committed mass extinction, uh, elimination of humans. I mean, we have people who can attest to it from their own um, eyewitness observations. And of course, I'm thinking of the, the Nazi death camps yeah, immediately absolutely. at the top of the head. Pol Pot, I think Pol Pot killed about 3 million Cambodians. Um, mm -hmm. Stalin killed, eliminated a whole class of people in the Soviet Union by when he when he wanted to collectivize the farms, I think it was. Um, so we've seen that sort of thing. And the question is, was it a manipulation by the deep state or was it just the the nutcase operating at that time uh, that that was responsible for it and really not evidence of a deep state manipulation. So but I guess the answer would be if the deep state declared that then uh, I would imagine there would be that sort of thing happening if they decided it was within their best interest to do something like that. I can't see those people uh, being conscious stricken by giving such an order. And uh, you just have to manipulate uh, the society. And we see that going on in today's world, uh, I think which is leading to catastrophic catastrophic conclusion here. One last question before we wrap this up. It's sort of a double-sided question. Why did we never go back to the moon after the 1970s? And what is the deep state's role in that? I don't know why we haven't been back to the moon. The technology exists to do it a lot better and a lot easier and a lot safer than than uh, than we did. I, I know that there was a real – Isaac Asimov wrote a science fiction story, I think, in the 1930s, which the editor wanted to publish because it was the first time a science fiction writer had written a story about the a negative response to spaceflight. 
And when we get to the 1960s and then 70s, we have people who are annoyed that we had gone, spent all that money to go to the moon. As you know, $400 million sitting on the moon. Well, not really. Um, that $400 million was filtered back into society with the people who were working on the moon project and the technicians working on that and the scientists involved. And they were, of course, being paid for their work and they were spending their money in the grocery stores and the fast food restaurants and buying cars. So it all sort of filtered through society that way. So the, but there was a real, we should spend that $400 million elsewhere uh, for each space flight. So it, it kind of fell out of, fell out of uh, favor to, to go to the moon. John Kennedy said, we'll go to the moon by the end of the decade. And he did it. Um, now we talk about going to Mars. We we're supposed to be on Mars 20 years ago. And now uh, they're still talking about a possible Martian expedition. When I was when I was in college, I actually went through Air Force ROTC with a plan to become an important part, an important individual with a unique background that I would be selected for the Mars mission, uh, which of course didn't work out. <laughs> These things happen, but I, um, I think our priority shifted, and it may be that the steep. Deep State decided, you know, there's no more point in, in this nonsense, um, you know, and it may be it may be that it was it was something that um, John Kennedy wanted to get done and uh, it got done and we moved on from there. Um, I'm not sure I, I can think. When we look at, and I made this argument before, when we when we look at the technology that came out of the space flight program, you know, we are benefits of that from, from our cell phones and microprocessors and computers. My cell phone is more powerful than the computer they had on Apollo right. 13 when they went to the moon. My, my, well, my cell phone is more powerful than the Star Trek communicator. I have all the knowledge of the human race at my fingertips, and they could only access the stupid ship. <laughs> I can look up anything on the internet. I get a lot of bad information that way, but I can look anything up on the internet. I just have to be careful <laughs> how I how I how I analyze that information. But uh, you know, I just uh, I look at that. I don't know why we haven't been back to the moon, other than there may have been no benefit to us going to the moon since the last Apollo mission. Um, but there's still there's talk about returning to the moon all the time, so we may do that. I will say one thing, and it's sort of a science fiction proposition as well, that we re we see all these movies where the alien creatures invade Earth, and uh, we have these great battles with the creatures around Earth. I'm thinking there's absolutely no reason for them to do that because they can just stand off in space and throw rocks at us, um, which means, you know, throw meteors at us. Tunguska yeah. proves the, the, the destruction that can be done by just throwing a meteor at the planet Earth. And it, it, the kinetic energy causes it to detonate with great power. Um, but there, it, it, it may be the, the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, took some of the emphasis off needing to get to the moon and, and build some kind of... Um, um, structure there, some kind of base on the moon. It may be uh, other in, other things influence where we needed to go and what we needed to do. I don't know why we haven't gone back to the moon um, other than society has evolved. Hmm. Do you think that um, 
talking about the deep state publicly like you and I are doing now puts us at risk. That crossed my mind as we were talking about this. But then the information's been out there. I mean, people have been talking about it for a long time. And I I don't think uh, we really present a risk from the deep state because we'll be labeled conspiracy, conspiracy theorists. And we can be dismissed in that way, regardless of what we may have. And, and you know, my emphasis was looking on it through the lens of UFOs, which really doesn't present much of a threat to them at all. Right. So I, I just don't really think it presents much of a threat to them at all. Uh, you know, I, I've kind of talked about this in other arenas where they said, you know, people will come up to me. The local UFO investor comes up and they say, well, how they've been tricked threatened by the government to stop their work. And I'm thinking, why? Nobody knows who you are. Nobody cares what you're doing. I've got a, I've got a national platform and I've never been threatened in that way. Hell, I had to have top secret security clearances for my jobs in the, both the air force and the army. And I was never, never um, uh, refused the, the, uh, the, the security clearance. In fact, the guy who did the investigation when I was, became an intelligence officer in the Air Force, the guy who did the top secret investigation happened to live across the street from my father. And he was well aware of my UFO research. There were like four or five articles where I was bad mouthing the Air Force that they had collected <laughs> in the file. And I still got the clearance. So yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's just a level of paranoia I don't care to get into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or maybe the stuff that they have is just, inconceivable to us <laughs> we're just small potatoes yeah that and then that's really it although they could buy me off very very cheaply <laughs> we don't really have to do anything drastic you know i uh just you know a little infusion of cash here and there i'd be happy <laughs> <laughs> yeah i suppose i would take that also at this point <laughs> i know i have got no money from the air force <laughs> Neither. Um, so before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you? Um, I would say at my house, but I really don't want them showing up. That's good. Yeah. But uh, the book, the book, uh, UFOs in the Deep State, um, launches a week from today, May 1st. Uh, it's already up on Amazon. You can look it up on Amazon. You can pre-order the um, the Kindle. Well, you can pre-order the, the hard copy if you wish. Um, and it'll be shipped out next next Monday, um, so you can take a look at there. There, uh, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Kevin Randall, all one word, all lowercase.blogspot.com, or type in a different perspective into your search engine, and, and it comes up. If you're looking at UFO cases, a lot of times some of the UFO cases, my my blog is the first place that comes up when I do a Google Google search. Maybe it's just because it's my my blog. I don't know. Um, but you can find it there. So, you know, look at Amazon, look at, uh, look at, um, look at, uh, uh blogs, uh, and, and that sort of thing. My blog takes you to other places. There's always links to additional information. Like there's a link to my, um, my Vietnam ground zero blog. Uh, also I do a science fiction blog called the science fiction site dot blogspot <laughs> where there's science fiction stories that I've written. And then my friend Bob Cornett and I have written, and there's our analysis, my analysis of movies or reviews of movies and other books and things like that. Just sort of science fiction stuff that shows up there. Oh, cool. So there's a, uh, there's a lot of places I can be found uh, to take a look at the stuff. And I think that 
there's such a wide variety of opinion on my blog, for example. I think that the people are going to find an awful lot of stuff that would interest them. And even if they don't follow my specific um, belief structure, my bias, they're going to find people who are deeply into UFOs. Uh, I interviewed Calvin Parker twice uh, for my radio show at uh, exonebroadcast.com. Cleverly called a different perspective. In fact, on my blog, there's a embedded digital player and you can scroll through the 150 shows that I've done on mm-hmm. radio shows that I've done there. Uh, so I've interviewed Calvin Parker. I've interviewed um, Terry Loveless, whom, who we've mentioned, uh, Kathleen Martin. Who's, yep, I've interviewed her. They're deeply into uh, uh, the abduction phenomenon. Uh, on my old radio show that I had in uh, at KTSM in El Paso, yeah, KTSM El Paso, uh, I interviewed Travis Walton, for example. But on, by the same token, I've interviewed Philip Class. I've interviewed um, Bob Schaefer, who is a, I, I think is a, a legitimate skeptic, as opposed to a debunker. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a rational uh, a skeptic. I've interviewed Lance, um, Lance, Lance, Lance. His last name escapes me. Lance, I'm sorry. I keep wanting to say Lance Meyer. That's not right. Oh, Lance Moody, Lance Moody, who's a skeptic and I think a very rational guy. Uh, about UFOs and that sort of thing. So I, you know, it's a, a wide range of different opinions, and I think that people, are, and, and I think that's where we should be. At, like in the newspaper, in the media, we should be looking at both sides of the coin or all sides of the coin to get a good, solid understanding of what's happening. So, those are ways to find uh, all sorts of information from me. All right. So uh, if you have a few extra minutes someday uh, before we put this up, just send me an email with all those links. And I will post them in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check all that out. It sounds like it'll keep them busy for, I don't know, maybe half a lifetime at least. There's a thousand, there's over a thousand (laughs) postings on my blog. And there's 150 hours of radio show to listen to. Oh, and I didn't mention it. I do a weekly segment on Coast to Coast AM. (laughs) George Norrie. You know, there's the big one. I am on coast to coast every week. <laughs> it's a short segment. It's only like three, two or three minutes, mm-hmm. but it's, it talks about what's the latest thing going in, uh, in UFOs. And I've been doing that for uh, uh, better than six months now. And, and they keep coming back to me. So uh, I think next week I'm on Friday. Awesome. As opposed to th- Usually I'm on, I'm on the first segment in the first half hour on Thursday or Friday nights. And, uh, I'll have to come up with something for Friday's show. I haven't even done that yet. But yes, Coast to Coast AM. I'm on Coast to Coast AM. (laughs) Tell George I said hi. (laughs) I certainly will. (laughs) Well, this is a pleasure speaking with you, man. Thank you so much for coming on. This was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Well, I've had a lot of fun, too. And thank you for um, inviting me. I'm glad. Somehow your, your, your book, your new book, mysteriously arrived at my house. I was like, wow. (laughs) Well, we can thank the people at New Page Books for that. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, It was a pleasure talking to you. You are welcome back anytime. And hang on for one moment, and I just have to play the outro. Okay. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise. 
to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.